following sermon podcast is a glimpse into the community of Central Bible Church, where we strive to welcome everyone into Jesus' life. We hope that you can join us for this Sunday service as we gather together seeking to live in and for Christ. going to continue in our worship now with the reading of the word and our sermon series picks up in Acts chapter 6 verses 1 through 7. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing the Hellenist Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Fellow believers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group, and so they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicolaus from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid hands on them. And so the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Mackenzie. Good morning, everybody. I'm Ben. I wasn't here with you last week, or at least I wasn't preaching last week, so it's good to be back. One thing as we get going, um, Bob mentioned that we have a meeting next Sunday. He called it a family meeting, and that's right. He got it right, but don't think it's just for families. It's for this family. So anybody in the church is welcome, uh, encouraged. We will meet for Q&A related to the closing of Joy Central next Sunday, uh, right after the church service. So look forward to seeing you there. Okay, you have a bulletin, I believe. Did we do bulletin this week? All right. And you have a quote there. And that's where I want to open up this morning with a quote from Oscar Wilde. He says, those who go beneath the surface do so at their own peril. That's one line out of a, out of a larger quote. Here it is. He's speaking about art, artwork, and what artwork is. He says, all art is at once surface and symbol. Those who go beneath the surface do so at their own peril. Those who read the symbol do so at their own peril. It is the spectator and not life that art really mirrors. When you look at a piece of art, you can look at it on the surface and then just keep going. But when you see the deep symbol 
That symbol often reflects back upon us. Sometimes good artwork can be uncomfortable in that way, a little bit jarring. I think the same is true with Jesus, perhaps the greatest artistic masterpiece of all, if you think of Jesus as art. Those who exist within the realm of surface realities can look at that art and remain unaffected. They're able to continue about their lives without much consequence. There is no peril, if you will, to their emotional or mental bubble of safety. They can skim along the surface and they don't see the symbol or its true nature. I think this same approach to Jesus allows for the same kind of consequence. So long as we stay on the surface of Jesus, he was a great guy, he was my personal Lord and Savior, he's the resurrected one, he's the Son of God, whatever sort of title or surface picture that we have for him sometimes makes us feel good just in the saying of those words, who's Jesus? Oh, he's the Son of God, okay, good. The question is, what does that symbol mean? What's the deeper reality? You can skim along the surface of Jesus and never expose yourself to his deep character or his true nature. And I think we do that often because Jesus, like a good piece of art, mirrors back to us who we are. You look deeply at his character and you will learn something about your own. That can be very jarring or unsettling, and so often we just like to look to the title or to the name. Maybe we could tweak Oscar Wilde's quote like this to read, those who get to know Jesus for real do so at their own peril. Because getting to know Jesus costs you your life as you take on his Okay, that's the thought that I want to open with this morning because I think the story we read that Mackenzie just read exposes this reality to a group of Christians. It's a story about a group of early Christians. We're a group of 2018 Christians in Portland. So I want to look at it at that level. Getting to know Jesus for real. That's not easy sometimes. So I want to go back to that first verse. There's a lot going on here. The first verse in Acts chapter 6, he says, In those days when the number of disciples, I've said many times from this pulpit, the root word of disciple, matethes, is learner. So the number of Christian learners was growing. That's what a disciple is. It was increasing. And the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Okay, now the, we don't have daily distributions of food here at Central Bible Church, so we might quickly say, oh, well, skip to the next uh, scene. This doesn't have any bearing for us, but I think it does. We just have to sort of peel back a few of the layers. One thing I'd notice off the bat is that we have people in the very earliest church complaining. Well, that's interesting. A complaint arose from among them. You say, I thought this was the first century church. This is the perfect church. This is the ideal church, you know. A good church isn't going to have people complaining in it. 
What's going on here? At least, at least we know this is the last problem that the church ever had. So this is it. We're just, it's here. We can think about it abstractly or whatever. Sometimes we might think, well, geez, they must have had really bad leaders. If they were complaining, if there was a division or a rift that formed, must have had bad church leaders. You can call the Apostle Peter a bad church leader if you want. I'm not going to. I think what it tells us is that the church seems to be made of people. We seem to be made of people. And that is something we could probably all do very well to remember. And we're all people that happen to be in the same boat. So here we are, right out of the gate, they have some conflict. And they're trying to figure out what it is. Notice the conflict is caused by a situation that's not that unfamiliar to us. It says the number of metathes, the number of disciples, was expanding. Growth. Growth causes problems. Growth calls our heads into, is this thing scalable? Can we expand well? Growth is difficult to experience and plan for and lead. They had a system in place that worked very well. Now there's a whole bunch of new people from other lands coming in, and the system doesn't work the way that it used to. So they're called to complain about it or change. <laughs> it's kind of oftentimes your two options. So here Luke mentions that there was this system going on. It was a daily distribution of the food to widows in their church community. Now, if you belong to a synagogue back then, you see these first earliest Christians are Jewish, and they're worshiping God at the temple or at the synagogue. And if you had grown up worshiping God in the synagogue, you were used to some rhythmic patterns. And every Friday, somebody would come along with a kapah or a basket, and they would take a collection from everybody in the community once every Friday. And then when they brought that basket around, you'd put money, food, supplies. You'd put that into the basket. And this was maybe our modern-day equivalent of a benevolence fund. And they would hang on to that, and they would use that for widows in need or orphans, people who were genuinely needy. Okay, so you have this system going on. Folks who were in temporary need would get enough to carry on for the day. And folks who were in permanent need, like a permanent disability or something, They'd get 14 meals worth at a time, two meals a day, seven days, and that would be the way they distributed that. Then you had the tamui, or the tray. So the basket goes around every Friday. The tray goes around every single day. The tray is just a collection of cash, and the tray is just a collection for those with immediate pressing needs, the kind that are day-to-day important, okay? I think this is what Luke is talking about when he's, when he's talking about the daily collection. So there's, if you can imagine being a community back then, and you're, and you're trying to do right by those in your community who are deeply needy, and now we have a lot more folks coming into the community who share those same needs. Can you see how that might create a conflict? That's pretty basic, yeah. So Here's the tension that's rising. One thing that's really cool is that they even cared. (laughs) You see the Christian community taking on the ethos of the Jewish community, which had been established for a very long time. 
You go all the way back to Exodus, in Exodus 22, God talks to his people, and, he's, and I think he's saying something like, look, I get it. This world is pretty raw, and it's really hard to survive in. So there's going to come a point where you, where you really believe that this is about just your surviving and then those who are the fittest are going to survive the longest. That's the way it is. You're just going to have to look to yourself and make it. But I'm going to tell you something different. This is all the way back in Exodus. God says, that is of the mindset of a broken world. I am of the mindset that every human being has infinite value and worth regardless of their age or disability or marital status. And so even though it's not instinctively in you to care for widows because there's nothing they're going to really do to advance your cause, I want you to. So he says, you must not afflict any widow or any orphan. That's in Exodus 22. Deuteronomy 10, he says, um, Moses speaking, we serve a God who has no bias. There aren't people who are more important and less important. And this is a God who justly treats the orphan and the widow and loves the resident foreigners, giving them food and clothing. So you must love the resident foreigner because you yourselves were once this way down in Egypt where I rescued you from. So God has woven into this community a love for, a value for all people, and specifically caring for those who have a tremendous amount of need. He picks it up four chapters later again. The resident foreigners, the orphans, the widows of your villages, they may come and eat their fill so that the Lord your God may bless you and all the work that you do. Living with an open heart of generosity toward those who have real need is a blessing for you. This is woven into the hearts and minds of the Jewish community from way early, way early. The foundation of the people, the foundation of their system of life. And so, this Jewish mindset ends up valuing the poor, seeing the poor as those who deserve favor and those who are destined for God's favor. You see Jesus, a Jewish man, talking that way. The last will be first. He's reflecting a deeply Jewish mindset. This is very different than the Greco-Roman world around them who's going to use language like this to talk about the poor. The average world around them will call the poor dishonest, polluted, wicked, defiled. They're kind of dirty, filthy people, you know? The low rung, they're the lessers. So the world around them speaks about the poor that way. The Jewish community does not. And now the Christian community has glommed on to that Jewish mindset and carried the traditions of caring for the widows and the orphans, the poor, the strange foreigners in their land. They care for them all. So what's going on here? Because he's talking about strife not between the culture at large and the church. It's strife within the church. What's happening? Well, there might have been some of that disdain that creeped into the culture at large. We tend to do that sometimes. We take in the values of the world around us into our religious communities. So that could have been there. There could have been folks who were just like, bah, 
they're poor, who cares? We don't care about them. I don't think that's primarily it because of the way Luke talks. I think that he is showing us not that people stopped caring for the poor or the widows in general. Instead, he's showing us how the combination of two very different kinds of Christians created conflict. I wouldn't be surprised if God wanted this short story to be in our New Testament because it would be something we all experience and need guidance in. It's another example of just how human Jesus' church is. Jesus' church is human. That's interesting. If you have an ideal for church and you're kind of chasing that ideal, I suspect that you're hurting deeply. If you've been upset because church is not ideal, it's a little bit like being upset that your car can't fly. A car is a car, not an airplane. Church is a group of people. It's not a group of perfection. As the community was growing to include these foreign Christians, this rift, this rift forms as well. It's within. Who are all of these new faces? Say the established folks. Why are we supposed to love them the same as our own? This is our own. Who are, where are they even coming from? This just doesn't seem realistic. I can hear those kinds of thoughts as the, as the complaints rise. So what's happening? Is this that they don't have enough resources to help? Is it that they look down on those who are poor? What is it? It's interesting. Our elder and our long friend here, Norm Cook, he has a great saying. He says, Christians are like bags of tea. You never know what you're going to get till you put them in some hot water. I think that these Christians are in some hot water right now. By getting beyond the surface ideas of Jesus, getting deep into his character, they're learning something about themselves that is both jarring and it's in need of change. I think Jesus is helping them to see that they have unnecessary limitations on their love for others. Of unnecessary limitations on their love for others. It's easy to love somebody you know. It's quite a bit more difficult to love the strange foreigner in your midst. Or to love a widow who by all rights probably can't help to advance your cause at all. And this seems to be a moment where the people have to take seriously the deep character of Jesus. Who seems to shower Love, to pour love out indiscriminately on people. So you have two kinds of Jews. Luke cued us into this with the word um, Hellenistone, Hellenistic. Some of your Bibles will say Greek-speaking or Grecian-speaking or something like that. You have the Jerusalem-Palestinian Jews. These guys are the purists. They've been there. They're speaking Aramaic. That, that goes back to the native tongue. So they're kind of holding on the original language, the great traditions, they're, and they're proud of their unsullied heritage. Then you have Hellenistic Jews. 
They're speaking Greek. They're living in uh, lands that are not Israel. They're coming in from other places. And with that, they, they bring traditions and customs from the different worlds that they're coming from. So they're not speaking the, the right language. And they're bringing in styles of dress, different customs, different ways of celebrating, all that stuff. So Christians, but two very, very different kinds of Christians. And a complaint rose up from the Hellenistic widows, the Greek-speaking widows, and they said, we're being neglected. I think I've shown perhaps they were even deliberately being neglected. And that's when Peter comes in and he says, as you might expect him to say, you know what, widows? It is high time you stop whining about food. Start focusing on the spiritual teaching of Jesus and his gospel. Start praying and stop being so carnal and driven by the flesh. Always wanting kosher beef. You should be wanting the living bread. I mean, look at his own words right there, verse 2. He says, so the twelve gathered and the disciples, they came together and they said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. It's simple logic, isn't it? One matters a lot and one doesn't matter so much. Boom. That's it, right? Have you ever heard this verse before? I've heard this verse many, many times. I heard this idea, preaching and teaching are more important than sandwiches and water. Way more so. But it feels a little weird, doesn't it? I think we need to sort of peel the layers back a little bit more. This is that place where we have to worship God with our minds, too, and think a little bit deeper below the surface. I think we can agree that the gospel of Jesus very truly is more important than a ham sandwich. <laughs> okay? Nobody's going to be like, uh-uh, they're equal, totally. They're just, they're just different. However, that's kind of an abstract comparison. It's, it's pulling it out of a concrete reality and just comparing them on their own inherently. That's fair. The gospel is more important than sandwiches. But we're not talking philosophically about ultimate importance. And I don't think that Peter is trying to say that by loving others and giving them much-needed food, you're somehow doing something less important than the teaching or preaching or prayer ministry of the church. Here's what I mean. First, your NIV Bibles and many other Bibles use the language of waiting on tables. The intent there is to bring it into a, a more concrete contemporary idea to give us a picture of what's happening. They're serving food. The verb there is simply serving. It's where we get our word deacon from. And so it's, it's I think, sometimes a little bit unfortunate because when I say, um, I got a job waiting tables, does that sound a little bit different to you than I got a job as a CEO? It sounds different to us, right? We have sort of a a high-rung job, and then some of those low-rung jobs. And so right off the bat, our language and what we bring to the Bible might cause us to hear Peter saying something, 
hey, I got to do stuff that matters. I need somebody else to wait on the tables to do the low-rung work. The second thing is that we've all grown up in a kind of Christianity that loves to take verses out of context. We like to cut them out and put them on our windows and whatever. That can be good sometimes, I think. Sometimes, though, we get really twisted theological ideas by doing that. My guess is that most of us have heard Peter's logic here. It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word and of prayer in order to wait on tables. I've heard that many, many times. How many of us, though, have ever listened carefully to the next two lines? Let's read those. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and Sophia, wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them, and then we'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. Doesn't that strike you as a little bit odd? If we just need to gather food and supplies, if we just need to distribute them, then why would Peter instruct them to find people who were known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom? You ever think about that? Hey, everybody, this is a call for the community. We need the wisest, most spiritually mature people in the room to come forward. We need this. Yeah, okay, how come, why? Because we need you to spread jelly and peanut butter on the bread and then squish it together. Got to be really wise. You know, it's a little bit weird that he would have those requirements for leaders if this is just kind of a whatever, moot point. I think we have something to learn right there. I think it is crucial for the ongoing life of our church. Taking care of people is the most honorable, glorious, heroic thing you can do with your life. Any moms and dads who have been discouraged this week by taking care of their children, it feels difficult, like it just never ends, and am I even making any headway? Yes, you're taking care of people. Those of you who are suffering as you take care of others who are suffering, take heart. It is no less important than preaching and teaching. Taking care of people is so crucial it's so part of Jesus' gospel, and oftentimes we've diminished it, and I think it hurts us. To Peter, it is so important, spiritually speaking, to get this part of community life right, that he is willing to say, I need the seven best in the community to be in charge of this part of our ministry. He sees this kind of love for one another as so radically valuable, so spiritually important that he says to the community, we need the wisest, we need the most spirit-filled, we need to do this part really, really well. It does not sound to me like, meh, whatever, it doesn't really matter that much. I think he's talking about something that's mission critical. And then there's one more thing here. Your NIVs will say uh, they will turn this responsibility over to them. Let's appoint these seven dudes, and then we'll turn over this responsibility to them. It's a great word. Don't cross that out of your Bible. But 
the word at the heart of it is need. Sometimes when we think about, hey, can you take on this responsibility that can have a whole host of meanings? I want you to feel a deep sense of need here. Here's the way that the New English translation catches it. It says, but carefully select from among you, brothers, seven men who are well attested, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this necessary task. I think the New English translation gets a little bit closer to that deep sense of need. That necessary task in the Greek is just one simple word, need. Very tersely, the Greek says, whom we may put in charge of this need. Have you ever tried to convince somebody the difference between wants and needs? You know, I try to do this with my children all the time. They don't ever ask me for something they need, ever. It's always just wants. Usually it has refined sugar in it of some kind. There's a difference between wants and needs. We've all tried to make that case for other people, and we have said needs are life or death realities. These are sustaining your existence type of realities, not Nintendos. Peter calls seven people, the most wise, the most spiritually mature, to take care of a need This isn't a luxury sort of add-on. It's a crucial, mission-critical part of life together as a Christian community. He's teaching his community that tangibly caring for the needs of others in the community is part of the full gospel ministry. If it's not happening, then we're imbalanced. We've taken half of a breath. We've drank half the cup of water. We're only half of a gospel. I think we need to learn something here as a community. We are going to only continue to damage ourselves and damage our church if we carry on with the notion that the best part of church is preaching and teaching. It'll wreck us. It has wrecked so many churches already. I just come for the preaching and teaching. We see that mindset filtering into the internet now. This idea that what my high calling as a human being is from God is to find the best content out there and get it into my head. Human to human relationship, meh. Taking care of others, I totally love that idea. I just, I gotta wait till it's a little bit more convenient. And all of a sudden, we think that the gospel is about ideas and words and saying them and hearing them. And our heartbeat gets softer and quieter until it's just dead. It's really important to see this passage and many others, to see that life in the gospel, in the life of Jesus, is a life of restored relationship to our fellow human beings. And we move away from that Cain and Abel, man, I'm not my brother's keeper, what are you talking about, God? We move to say... I am my brother and sister's keeper. God put me in the life of this community to bless and help and care for and do heroic things like caring for somebody else. That's very beautiful. If we don't get that in our heads, if we refuse to change, if we stay the course of preaching and teaching are the number one, most best, number one, nothing else matters more than that, if we stay on that road, 
we will keep thinking that our churches need to have great programs. They don't. They need to have loving Christians. We'll feel awkward with each other in social gatherings that don't have a speaker or some kind of music. We'll say, I'm not here to see you. I don't actually even want to talk to you. I'm just here to hear the speaker. Guess, guess why so many children are walking away from the church when they turn 18? They're not walking away from Facebook. That has a meaningful connection to them. A digital interface often has more of a meaningful connection to them than the churches they've grown up in. You don't walk away from deep, meaningful, connected relationships that have blessed you and helped to raise you up. You don't just say, well, whatever, I'm going to the university, who cares? But sometimes, if you're like me, I went through 18 years of church stuff growing up. At no point ever did I have a deep, meaningful friendship. It was always just about hearing the stuff said. Just this morning on the radio, I'm coming into church. I always listen to talk radio. I don't know if you do too. It's weird. I'm driving in. There's the sociologist on, I guess, you know, listen to sociologists on talk radio on Sunday morning at like 6 a.m. So there I am. And he makes, he is doing this uh, study talking about a book he wrote. And he has done a, a, a long study on what it takes for a human being to bond with another. He said, you want to get to the place where, you're, where you would call somebody a, a friend, like a true friend? He said, that's minimum 200 hours. All right. And that's 200 hours, and then he qualifies the time. I guarantee it's not 200 hours of sitting shoulder to shoulder quietly, both staring the same direction. That's 200 hours of coffee and hanging out and swimming and going camping or walking around, whatever. It takes time to build relationships and friendships. Sometimes we don't even take the time to do it. He said, you know how many people will go through their entire life without one close confidant? I don't remember what he said, so there you go. That was fun. I don't remember how many people it is, <laughs> but it was huge. It was a huge, he said, uh, easily the majority. Easily the majority of people will never have a single person that they say, I can confide deeply in that person. And then most of us will only ever have 12 friends. Not that that's a bad thing, kind of like that's just our capacity. Okay, what am I saying? If we don't take seriously what it takes to develop friendships and connectedness, we're just going to come every single week hoping to hear the next greatest content delivery. You get to be 50, 60 years old and wonder, man, what is church anyway? I've heard all this stuff a thousand times. This passage, this story helps to expose to us how the apostles, the founders of the church said, it's a both and. It's you and me both. It's preachers and teachers and disciplers and cooks and cleaners and people who are loving and taking care of children, and I could go on and on. I think we find ourselves at a crossroads in the history of American evangelicalism. Central Bible is a small church, but it reflects many others going on. Things are changing. We've grown to think of the church as teaching or preaching or authority or missions or fundraising or singing. But many have not begun to think of church as a caring for one another as true friends, as true family. 
It's extremely interesting to note that the first people that are appointed to a specific role like this in the church, some people might call it an office. He doesn't lay it out like an office in this text. It is elsewhere in Paul's writing. The first people appointed to an office or given a specific role are not told to talk. They're told to serve and to lead the community in serving one another. It's almost like Jesus knew we would make this mistake. His words carry the sense of eternal life, and so we're drawn into those inspiring moments that happen when we hear his words. We just want to repeat them and hear them over and over and over, almost to the point where Christianity becomes an escape for us, an escape from the hard realities of a brutal life. But that, I would suggest to you, is a surface-only engagement with Jesus. It is love for the things he says, but it is not love for the life that he lives. I see many Christians who love the things Jesus says, but they find the life that he lives to be altogether inconvenient. And those folks are notoriously dissatisfied with the church and uninterested in the needs of others. Those who are willing to go beyond the symbol, to go beyond the surface, sorry, to go beyond the surface of the cross and get deep into the symbol, what it means, deep into the character of Jesus, where they get to know him for real, they do so at their own peril. I'm kind of winking and nodding when I say that. It's the peril in the sense of you do lose your life, but take his on. People who go beyond the surface and into the symbol might ask a question like this. Who is responsible for your church's health, Jesus? And Jesus replies, you and me both. They ask the question to the pastor. Who is responsible for ministering the gospel to the people? In this local church, the pastor says to them, and I, as your pastor, would say to you, who's responsible for this ministry? You and me both. And they ask the question to their Christian friend, who is supposed to meet? Who is supposed to welcome? Who is supposed to lovingly care for the Hellenistic widows in our community, or the Syrian refugees, or the millennials, or the old timers, or the child, or the hurting neighbor? Who is that? And the Christian friend says, you and me both, because we are with Jesus. The best part of church is sharing in the life of Jesus holding his love and his mission together in common. And this is a life that includes preaching and teaching and praying. Yes, it absolutely does. And those things are just as important as spending hundreds and hundreds of hours playing games and telling stories and working on the church building or landscaping it or our own homes and our own backyards talking to one another, taking collections of food and money and supplies to show love and support to those in the church who have real needs, 
even extending our generosity beyond the church community into the neighborhood and the city and the world around us so that they can see a community of Christians living the way God showed us to live as he lived in Jesus. The best part of church is that we live with Jesus in every possible full gospel kind of way. And taking care of people like Jesus does is not a low-rung kind of ministry. It's the most honorable, glorious, heroic, purposeful thing you can do. It's the best thing you can do with your life. You and me both. Let's be that way. Let's pray. Jesus, to watch the story unfold as Luke tells it, see your very first hours and days and months of a church community coming together, trying to learn what it means to live in your way, we resonate with these guys. Our churches have never been static, ever. There's always new faces and new challenges, different complaints and new conflicts. Rifts form, divisions happen, reconciliation comes. Renew. It's just a hodgepodge. Thousands of years you've been watching us, and now here we sit. We're a small community sitting in a very large brick building here in Portland. And we have all come to this place with a whole host of backgrounds, different theologies and so forth. Jesus, through your spirit, would you help us to become simple? Help us to simply see the reality of your life and believe that it is good. You are good. So often, though, it feels like you are inconvenient. I ask, as a pastor here, on behalf of our whole congregation, women and men and children, all of us together, would you please help us to see the fullness of your gospel, to be free within it, to feel no pressure or obligation, but instead tremendous love and desire to be with you, to care for one another, to take this ministry on as our mutual responsibility. We love you very much. We trust you with our lives. We trust you with what we'll say is our church, but we know that it is your church. Thanks for taking care of us the way you do. Amen. desire to be formed by the word of God in community. If you have questions about this week's sermon, we would love to hear from you. For more information about our church, please visit centralbible.church.